Hi there, and welcome to another Two Texts bonus episode for Christmas. I'm here with John Andrews, and we're going to be talking to you today about Joseph. Well, John, it's even closer to Christmas now, and I think we're now beyond the stage of panic. We're now into the stage of just of just acceptance that if you're not organized now, <laughs> you might not be organized this Christmas. <laughs> come on, come on. Well, we've got our Christmas lights up here in England and it's all going on. So it's it's feeling very Christmassy, it has to be said. And by the time we are recording this, of course, it's evening for me, morning, morning for you. So mm. the fire's lit and it's feeling stuck in drought already, David, in hope <laughs> and optimism. So it's all it's all feeling like Christmas at the moment. So it's good. I love it. In our church, we're midway through talking about uh, Advent. We'll just come to the end of it now, actually, talking about Advent, which is a really interesting thing to do to sort of think about the, the, the biblical stories that lead us up to Christmas and the prophecies that lead us up to Christmas, which can be a little bit intense. We were laughing about it sometimes, how I think people want sermons uh, sometimes about jingle bells, and, and we're talking about <laughs> John the Baptist and the announcements of Jesus and everything like that. Come on, that's... Leave jingle bells for another time. Come on, let's let's do the book, man. Come on, it's once a year. We got to do this. Got to do absolutely. It. And so, in our last couple of episodes, we talked about Mary, and so we're going to move slightly to uh, slightly to the left today and talk about Joseph. So yes. we're 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 giving you the two the two sort of siding characters uh, at the center of the nativity scene around Jesus, aren't we? So mm-hmm. and then, so we talked uh, last time we were across in Luke's gospel, where Luke gives us quite a lot of focus on on Mary, the Magnificat, and all that beautiful, beautiful language. But to talk about Joseph, you find yourself actually jumping across to Matthew. And and this is something that that you and I notice, and and a lot of other people notice, that when it comes to the way that we often tell the Christmas story, the way that we talk about the Christmas story, we're actually, or even what we might call the nativity, if you've ever, if anyone's ever gone to a nativity play or watched the nativity movie, what you get is a sort of construction of all of the stories brought yes. together, doesn't yes. it? It yes. happened, and which creates some interesting, interesting moments for us sometimes, doesn't it? It does. It does. And what what I love about the birth narrative of Jesus is really by looking at Matthew and Luke separately, we do get very much a feminine view of the narrative. We're, we're seeing the birth narrative very much through the eyes of Mary mm. in Luke. And, I, and there, there's no doubt about that in terms of some of the beautiful detail of that. And of course, the detail around Mary herself. And then I think we're getting a, a glimpse of how Joseph must have seen all of this, how he had to deal with this, how he needs loads of angelic visitation just to keep him on track <laughs> because it's pretty wild. And I think then that the Bible does something, the gospel writers do something really, really beautiful for us by separating the stories out, which we ultimately put together in mm-hmm. one big story at Christmas time. We we do see this incredible, miraculous event from two different perspectives and how the Lord deals with two individuals very differently in order mm-hmm. to help them process what they're about to do. And I think that's really helpful even in terms of our spiritual formation. The Lord comes to Mary in one way. He comes to Joseph in another way. Mary is very receptive and Joseph needs some help because he's trying to work out the implications. But but actually, both are reflecting the hearts of 
spiritual people that are open to the Lord, but need some assistance from the Lord to make this thing work. And and I do mm. love that, that we're given the detail so beautifully in both Gospels. Yeah, and I think it's worth saying that all of these stories do, they do work together. So it's not that the Gospels sit in any contradiction, but even the Gospel writers themselves, by choosing to focus on the particular parts of the stories they do, bring out different nuances, don't they? Mm. Matthew, you keep reading the story, you get to this visit of the Magi and these kind of, this almost royal sort of interaction with with Jesus. But then in Luke's gospel, you have the arrival of the shepherds. Mm. The normally ignored, the last people that you would tell, they get the angelic host telling them first, which almost speaks to Luke's narrative of of, of messing around, sort of status inversion and and turning things upside down, doesn't it? So so there's always, I always feel like it's worth saying to people that yes, the stories work together. I don't, I think when you layer all the stories together as a piece of history, I think they work. I don't think there's a problem with that. obviously still requires faith in it all, but but they're all there. But it's also important to sometimes read the stories separately within their own Gospels to ask the question, what is Matthew trying to tell me about Jesus here? What is Luke trying to tell me about Jesus? Indeed. Indeed. Absolutely beautiful. And and I think that's really worthwhile keeping in mind in everything we're doing. And we've we've done a lot of work with our listeners on parables and the miracles of Jesus, where we've we've really tried to encourage them to hear each gospel writer for themselves, mm. so they ultimately do work together. But let them speak for themselves. So, so as we dive into Joseph here, we're we're sort of letting Matthew speak, and yes. we're allowing Matthew to tell us Joseph's story. And there's a reason he's telling us Joseph's story in Joseph's way, in this particular way, uh, because it is, it, there are some important details that reflect on to not only Jesus, but onto Joseph himself. And I think by implication onto us as well. So do you want to read this for us, John? I would love to. It is absolutely beautiful. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, of course, our listeners should um, realize we're jumping in at verse 18. There has been a a long genealogy before this, and the genealogy is important to this story mm. and shouldn't be ignored. We're just jumping into verse 18 for two reasons. One, it shortens our reading. Number two, some of the names are hard to read. And so it's just much easier <laughs> to go to verse 18 <laughs> and do it this and, way. And when, when you're driving in your car, you do not need two minutes of Azar, the father of Zadok, <laughs> and Zadok, the father of Akim. Oh, gonna... <laughs> come on. But what wonderful people they were. Absolutely. So so just to make that little caveat, and then we're jumping into verse 18, and it says this, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, some say, some versions say righteous or just, And he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, 
which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. It's such a good passage. It's beautiful. <laughs> I, I get so excited this. I'm just working out some stuff for our for our carol service at church, and 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 we're we're kind of navigating our way through the Christmas story as as you always should do at a carol service. And and so I've been kind of reading all these stories and piecing them together. And, and every single one that I'm reading, I'm like, oh, we should do a two text on this. And, and so <laughs> I'm just really excited that we get to talk about this this passage today. <laughs> Absolutely. It is it is truly, truly gorgeous. And of course, in comparison to Mary's story, this this almost feels slightly more clinical, even though yes. it's filled with life and passion and emotion. When you read the Mary story, my goodness, there's all sorts of stuff going on. Uh, you've got direct communication and confrontation between Mary and the angel. You've got the backstory of Zechariah's encounter with the, the same angel in the temple. You've got the moving of the spirit. It's all going on. I mean, Luke's, Luke's introduction, Luke's gospel, Luke's narrative is so exciting and pulsating and you're involved and you feel like you're being drawn along by the characters. And then Matthew, it all feels quite sort of clinical. Mary's pregnant. Joseph is going to divorce her quietly. The angel appears in a dream and Joseph doesn't divorce her. And in fact, he takes her home. And and it almost feels a bit matter of fact in yes. comparison to Mary's story. But But I suppose what Matthew's trying to convey to us is some of the fundamentally huge ideas that are contained in this beautiful passage. Easy to read over them very, very quickly. But some of the detail in this passage and some of the detail, of course, in the verses that preceded, which are hinted at in the passage, Joseph, son of David. I mean, I think that's an allusion to the genealogy. I, I think some of the detail he contained in here should not be moved over quickly because it feels mm. a little bit clinical or mechanical in, in, in nature. I hope that, hope that doesn't offend our listeners, but in comparison to Mary, that feels like that to me. Oh, goodness. Yes, John. And and it's it's almost like I, I say these things that they're funny. And, and again, like you, I never mean this irreverently. But but there's almost a sense that Matthew's trying to rush through the birth of Jesus story so he can get to tell you about the Magi, right? It's because there's seven verses given to you. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. And seven verses later, and you have this wonderfully understated, oh, and by the way, like think about think, think about this. Look at verse 25. He did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. That's Matthew's telling you about the birth of Jesus. That's it. Like, yeah. like I, like again, please, no irreverence intended. But I want my money back. I, I, <laughs> I want, I want to know there's no room to stay anywhere. I want a donkey. I want a manger. <laughs> like, there's all these things that I want that I'm, I'm feeling like. But if you turned up at a church and they said this year's nativity play is based on Matthew, I think people, they'd be rioting in the pews, John. They'd be rioting in the it pews. Is. Absolutely. And then, and then Matthew gets beyond that and then spends like 17 verses talking about the magi and everything that comes mm. 
off the back of that as if he's almost thinking, well, this is the real story you need to yeah. get here. Wait till you hear what happened next. <laughs> it is. It's quite striking. It's quite striking. And yet, of course, even though that is the case, he drops some absolute... Oh, absolutely just pieces of gold in these few verses. I mean, stuff that if we will, especially when we think about Joseph, if we're going to hang around here for a few moments, which we are, mm. my goodness, there is, there, there's enough material in these few verses to fill every Christmas sermon in your Christmas program over the whole month of December, because it it's absolutely, excuse the yes. pun, pregnant with life and truth relating to Joseph. Just beautiful stuff. And and so you're almost jumping in there. There's, I'm, I'm going to use all these ideas today, John, that are going to sound irreverent, and I'm I'm going to I'm going to stop qualifying them, please, and just hope that everybody knows I'm not intending to be. But there's there's actually. An almost tabloid feel about how Matthew tells this story. So you're getting a very abbreviated story. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about, right? Mm. And then he gives you this line. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's a headline. <laughs> you yeah. know, like that's a, yeah. that's a, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to read this story because there's so much in there. You've got this couple in a, in a world where it would be highly inappropriate for unmarried people to, to be found to be pregnant. This would have huge social implications. It would be quite scandalous. And then he brings it and then he throws in this little comment, oh, through the Holy Spirit. We, let, let's come back to that in, mm. in a little bit. But you start, in my opinion, you start to see why it's interesting that Matthew started with a genealogy and why he frames the genealogy the way that he, that he does. That, that I think if you are a Jewish reader of Matthew, I think you, you maybe spot what he's done in the story. Do you, th do you think, and you track with what I'm saying there? That, yeah, yeah, go for it. That, so you begin, he begins with Abraham. Let me tell you a story, he says. I'm going to tell a story about Jesus, the Messiah. And he starts with Abraham. So this, immediately to a Jewish reader, you're yeah. taking it back to the roots. This is where yeah. we start as a people. And he lists you this long list of names, which everybody would be for, forgiven for falling asleep during that day of readings. And this is, you, there's a few points when you're doing your read the Bible in a year, or if you're the type of church that are reading the Bible through together, there are a few points where you would forgive, even Jesus himself, Jesus will forgive us everything, but he would definitely forgive you for drifting off during a list of names. Yep. But the list of names to me is quite interesting because of essentially just a few people who are mentioned in it, mm -hmm. namely the, the four ladies. Indeed. So Indeed. you get this list of men, who, which is a very classic way to build a genealogy. Here's the fathers and they, and they can attract them through. But you get Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, uh, verse three of Matthew chapter one. Oh, by, by the way, uh, their mother was Tamar. Right? Yeah. And then we come down a little bit further and we get Salmon, the father of Boaz. Oh, and by the way, his mother was Rahab. Yeah. Oh, and Boaz was the father of Obed. Oh, and, and by the way, Obed's mother was Ruth. Mm. And of course, Obed was King David's grandfather. So that's quite interesting. But oh, wait a minute. But David is the father of Solomon. Oh, and by the way, Solomon's mother, oh yeah, she used to be. And this is the first one that where Matthew almost breaks yes. protocol and just yes. alerts you something. Oh, by the way, and Solomon's mother had been Uriah's wife. Mm -hmm. 
and then he gets through the rest of these names, and and you may now are lost somewhere around Jotham and Uzziah, and, and you're trying to figure out what why you're reading this. And I'm tempted to think that what he does, which is quite interesting, is he highlights four scandals in, in Jesus's lineage. So in one sense, you've got this beautiful sense of 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 from David to the exile and 14 from the exile to the Messiah, which fits beautifully it into does. a kind of succinctness of 14s and 7s. Yes. But I think what Matthew's also trying to do is saying, oh, wait a minute, these four situations have scandal attached to them, which once, and we can talk about that scandal if, if, if you want, but for me, the reason that scandal is interesting is that he then opens the story of Jesus Indeed. with a scandalous opening. Oh, completely. Absolutely, completely. And I think that really is a beautiful summary to help our listeners to understand why such a genealogy is in play. You've got a sense of all of these incredible names and people, Mm. but the insertion of including Mary, the four women, three of them named. Interesting. And I'm sure there's a subtext, two text podcast all by itself on Uriah's (laughs) wife and why Bathsheba is not actually named. But you've got Absolutely. And of course, those women include not just scandal, but the inclusion of Gentiles within that context. Mm -hmm. And you've got this incredible sense of of women being woven into the line in order to produce something significant. Mm. And if you see the way he finishes the genealogy in verse 16, I think he really sets up the headline, which you've Mm. kicked off with. He says, uh, verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and mm-hmm. Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Mm-hmm. So, so he's, he's literally in a in a Jewish context that would normally see the genealogy through the male line in terms of just the how that's referred to. He's introduced four women, but he's mm-hmm. the final woman he's set up because he's about to introduce this idea of scandal of she's pregnant in a betrothed state, Mm. which at best could have got her divorced and at worst could have got her stoned. and But she's not pregnant by Joseph. She's not even pregnant by a man. She's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And so you not only see sort of the scandal within here, but you see in each of the the women involved, the grace also Mm. involved within this, that each of their stories is a grace-filled story, controversial, difficult but grace-filled, where each have been, through one means or another, drawn into the lineage of David, of, of, of Jesus. And now we have Mary as a female vocal point to this, to this particular story. So even though Matthew writes from J- Joseph's point of view, it is interesting. He sets Mary up. Yes, it's controversial, but he is setting her up in a way where he is heading that controversy off and he is Mm -hmm. seeking to protect her reputation, but also to reinforce that reputation through the behavior of Joseph. And and it's interesting, even the choices, like I I dare say in a family lineage, as long as this, there's other scandals. (laughs) But but it's interesting the, the way the Tamar story and the Bathsheba story, both of them women who are essentially vulnerable to the abuses of, 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 of men. And, and that to me is quite interesting. The way that we tell the story of Bathsheba, the amount of times you, you hear the Bathsheba story 
talked about as David and Bathsheba's affair. But when you read the biblical narrative, this is a king preying on a, on a vulnerable woman. It's not. It's not a story that, that it's. It's not a consenting relationship in the way that that would be. So David, this key king of Israel, the only thing that Matthew tells you about him is, oh, he had a son called Solomon. And that whole story was a mess, right? Which yeah. is which is quite interesting. Likewise, Tamar, this is Judah. I mean, he's he's wow. this figurehead of this side mm. of the tribes of Israel. And again, this horrible story w- with Tamar. But then the little verse five of chapter one, where, where we then insert a couple of non-Jewish characters mm. into the story. I think this is so powerful that yeah. that, that none, none of these women have done anything wrong. That's a really key uh, sort of thing that's that's worth noting as as well in it. But 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 Rahab and Ruth are now Gentile women inserted into the hero genealogy of King David. That that King David's grandmother and great grandmother <laughs> are are essentially shouldn't be in the story if you're if you were talking about quote unquote pure bloodlines and things like yep. that. And Matthew, which now this is quite interesting, of course, because they get adopted into the story. And we're gonna by the end of this genealogy, we're gonna have a problem that we got we got to the end of this genealogy. And I mean this is really disappointing for you if you've worked hard to remember all these names. You get to the end of the genealogy and then you get and then there's Joseph. Oh and by the way he isn't actually Jesus's father, <laughs> and, and so, so, so this, this, but for me, this is quite interesting because of that moment, and and, and the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, mm. and Mary was the mother of Jesus. So Mary gets drawn into this genealogy of King David, this Davidic line. And therefore, I mean, my take, John, then is that what you're getting in Matthew chapter one, verse seventeen to twenty-five is actually an adoption story. And and that might be why the focus is more around Joseph than it is around even Jesus to that extent. Because this is how Matthew's setting up this Davidic Bethlehem linked line of Jesus. Does that does that make sense? I, it does make sense to me. And it then positions although Joseph never speaks in our story. In fact it's fascinating that all the references to Joseph in the birth narrative, he never speaks once. <clears throat> it's, he's really a man of action, which is really quite striking, rather than a man of words. So he's spoken to, he's spoken about, he's spoken around. He never actually, there's no recorded speech. Isn't that remarkable? Yeah. Isn't that remarkable? So so no recorded speech. C- compare that to Mary, her magnificent song, and the conversation we have between Mary and Gabriel. Mm. And Joseph doesn't speak. But what he does do is he acts... And of course, one of his most significant acts is that he doesn't follow his legal right Mm. to do what he would be allowed to do if he found a betrothed woman had been unfaithful Mm. to him and was pregnant. He he actually, even before the angel appears, he is wanting to act honorably. But of course, what the angel is asking him to do is take Mary home with you. Make her your wife. She is. She Bring her into your world and raise the son that she carries as if he was your own. And it is a remarkable ask at many levels for this, this man, Joseph. And having seen in the genealogy, others folded into the story who did not belong. There is a sense in which there's a glorious 
prophetic irony in this moment that that Joseph could have abandoned Mary and yet he folds her into his family. He takes mm. her home with him in order to ensure that the child within her is raised in, in the context that he should be raised. So it is a remarkable mm. adoption motif, I think, mm. that is within there and, and shouldn't be missed, I think. The the interesting thing, of course, is as well in the story is that this is clearly something that hangs around Jesus's family for quite some time. They know, Joseph knows, this son is from the Holy Spirit. Mary knows this, but nobody else knows this. This no. is not, it's not like Jesus wears this as a t-shirt. And you definitely pick up in the Gospels this sense of of rumor is out there as to, mm-hmm. as, as to who's as to where Jesus comes from, which is yep. which is quite fascinating, really, to that this family then live with that that sort of mm. part of their journey, which is quite quite interesting. Um, and it is it, it is fascinating, David. If you jump over to the sort of Lucan version, you you have three identity moments um, in the life of Jesus. In in Luke, you've got Jesus at the baptism. Mm-hmm. This is my son. You are my son who I love. I'm well pleased with you speaking. The father mm-hmm. speaks to Jesus. And then you've got the first. So that's the first recorded words of the father to Jesus in the Gospels are words of affirming his identity. You're my son. Mm-hmm. The first recorded words of the devil to Jesus in Luke are at the temptation. If you are mm-hmm. the son. Yes. Yes. And then in between that, you've got this gorgeous little Lucan insertion at the end of the, the, the story that he was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. Mm-hmm. So you've got these three references to the identity of Jesus. He's affirmed by the father. He's questioned by the the enemy, challenged or questioned by the enemy. But there is this sort of acknowledged question mark by Luke. He was the son. Well, so it was Mm. thought of Joseph. So you get this. I I think it does hang around. And I think when Joseph says yes to the angel, says yes to obeying, I think he's taking on a whole bunch of stuff as well. I think he he recognises that his life is no longer his own and he can no longer simply do what he wants to do. But he'll have to surrender to a much bigger agenda, just as Mary has done. And he will have to surrender to that agenda in a particular way. Maybe slightly different from Mary's, but but uh, significant nonetheless. And, and the whole story then that, that we've got here in, in Matthew, it's really interesting because in the Greek text, Matthew does something quite interesting where the story is about Jesus. But as we said already, it's kind of about the adoption of of Jesus by Joseph, because mm-hmm. there's two things. In verse 21, you are to give him the name Jesus. And of course yeah. it ends, and he gave him the name yes. Jesus in verse yes. 25. Well, that's very much a like a father naming a son in this tradition is mm-hmm. he's now, he is now, I'm taking him as mine. And I'm, and I'm yep. going to, so that's, that's interesting. But Matthew does something really interesting, which you see in the Greek text, which is verse 18. It begins with Jesus's name. Right? So, so in the English text, for translation sakes, you know, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. But in the Greek, it sort of it begins Jesus Christ 
was sort of born this way, or this is how it came about. This is how it happened. And then the end of the passage in verse 25, the final word in the Greek, which is also true in the English, is Jesus. Mm. So there's a really neat little piece of writing there that, that Matthew bookends this whole passage it begins with Jesus. It ends with Jesus. And it, I mean, it's so subtle, but I think it's beautiful that it's this begins with Jesus, ends with Jesus. And there in the middle, you have Joseph being told, give him the name Jesus, which yeah. of course means the Lord saves. Of course. It's beautiful. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful observation, David, I think. And, and doesn't that if we wanted to sort of lift that and apply that to our own lives, isn't that a beautiful sort of image of our lives that it begins mm. with Jesus. Mm. It really ends with Jesus. It's really all about Jesus. And yet we, like Joseph, have been folded into his story. Yeah. We have been brought into this amazing story that he is building across the universe. And we get, like Joseph, to play our part in the mm. Jesus story. And I think it's a really cool way to see our lives. It, so often yeah. we see our lives as, well, no, this is my story and God needs to play his part in my story. Mm. But imagine if we could just flip that a little bit and go, well, actually, actually, it's his story and I get to play my part in his story. Mm. And I think, I think, did Matthew mean that? I, I, I certainly think there's a bookending idea going on there, but also mm. I just, I love this this juxtaposition of of Jesus at the beginning, Jesus at the end, and sort of Joseph firmly located in the middle, playing his part in the Jesus story. I just love that, David. That's a beautiful observation. And so his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. I mean, which is as well just that purpose clause, that this name is not just randomly chosen, right? Yeah. <laughs> which yeah. which I, I like. But I wanted to just, just spin round to the comment that you jumped into at verse nineteen. Mm. Right. Because I think there's some there's some work to do on how we read and understand verse nineteen. Yeah. Um I'm always reticent to say this because I don't want people to kind of start looking at their their biblical texts in different ways. But the way that the NIV translates verse 19, I find a little bit kind of problematic from time to time. But actually, I think we struggle a little bit with a lot of the translations on this front, not because the Greek is complex, but because I think we have a tendency to mishear what's being said there. Mm -hmm. So verse 19 in the NIV reads, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned even when you read it the first time, because yeah. Joseph, her husband, was righteous. And that is what the text is. Joseph text. is introduced as righteous, which is really interesting. But then what's fascinating, and this is where I think the NIV throws us away a bit, because when you hear faithful to the law, which on one hand is what righteous means, you think, oh, he's a law keeper, right? But we're only at Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, <laughs> so you're asking a lot to expect everyone to know this. But as this story sort of folds out, we're going to find Jesus throughout this gospel redefine what it means to be righteous, aren't we? He's going to, he's going to change our perspectives on righteousness. And I can't help just think that Matthew is beginning that work here, right? mm-hmm. almost prepping your heart for what you think righteousness looks like might not be what you think it is. Because the, the, the Greek text sort of essentially, again, and it seems to be Matthew's style of how he writes, but 
So we have, because Joseph, her husband, was righteous. But Matthew, actually, he says, Joseph, her husband, being righteous, yeah. right? That's, mm-hmm. that's the way he says it. Mm-hmm. And not wishing to expose her to public disgrace. So we read over that. We've heard this story so many times, John. That just sounds yep. really familiar, doesn't it? But actually, these two things don't wash. <laughs> because in the Jewish context, of following the law, keeping keeping the law properly, you have to choose between one of those. So yep. if you're really going to do what's according to the law, you have to take Mary to the court. <laughs> you have to take Mary to the, the village elders, more than likely, to the people to decide what should we do here. Mm-hmm. But Joseph decides, I'm going to sneak her out the, the back door and hide her. And and I don't think that is him being faithful to the law. I think nope. it's actually quite the opposite of that. I mean, do you agree with me at that point? Oh, I, do, I don't want totally. to, to. So I think what Matthew's doing is really clever. He's actually saying that, and and here's the line. If you then go on and read Matthew, so I'm being I'm being coy with my use of line here, you, but but actually I think you're seeing Matthew be righteous in a way that supersedes the law. Yes. <laughs> he actually, his righteousness is more than that of the, the scribes and Pharisees, to use Jesus' language. Because he yes. he decides, actually, the righteous, and this is what I think Matthew's telling us, the righteousness of God goes beyond just punishing someone for quote-unquote unproven sin, but the righteousness of God cares for a person. Uh, and maybe I'm reading too much into that, but I mm. think that's what Matthew's doing here. Because for Joseph sure. doesn't quite act Again, quote unquote, properly. I, I I love that. I mean, that's why I sort of inserted that in the reading. Mm. I I didn't. I I don't like that translation at all. I I think it does slightly move you in the wrong direction. And I think you've got here in the same way that when we looked at Mary's song, mm. we got this sense of hold on. There's a deeper pool of spirituality in this girl. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's something going on in her that's being seen and drawn out by the Lord. And mm. the Lord is even, could we argue, responding to that and reaching out to that? It, it, she's not just a, a virgin womb. She is a, a deeply spiritual servant of the Lord. I think you're getting the same exact nuance tucked away in this idea in Joseph, that that, that Joseph is righteous, therefore he's not <laughs> <laughs> okay, he's not following the law on this mm-hmm. issue. Yes, it's which brilliant. is the it's brilliant. spirit. It is. It's the very spirit of the salvation child in his wife, his wife's womb. That that the bruised reed he will not break. Isaiah says the smouldering wick he will not snuff out. That that actually, and I know it's a controversial story, but. But the moment he he stands up and he says to the crowd, well, if any of you are without sin, throw the first stone. Let's do this. Mm. Without without breaking Moses, he reinterprets the moment. Mm. And I think Joseph is doing exactly the same thing here. I think the very spirit that Jesus, the Messiah, will live by is being embodied in his his. Yeah stepfather, if you like. It's it's been embodied in Joseph. He knows the law means this woman, we've we got to do this properly and we're going to have to bring this to the light and this is going to be, at best, shame on her, at worst, destruction. And he goes, no, no, I, I don't want that. 
there's got to be a better way to do this. And so, mm. and and is Matthew describing that? Let's put this oxy that this sort of paradoxically is Matthew describing his lawlessness at mm. this point as righteousness. Yeah. If it is, it's deeply controversial. Having positioned him as as a son of David mm-hmm. and established his genealogy as impeccable. And then he goes, oh, and by the way, he's a righteous man. And that's why he's going to divorce her quietly, because he, he's not going to follow the letter of the law on this. I, I, I do love that. I do think there's controversy in there. I think it's deliberate. And I think Matthew yeah. inserts that right at the beginning. Yeah. It's, mm. I mean, I was trying to think of an analogy to help us relate to. But I think if you read a text like this as a Jewish person in the first century, the text to your ears would sound something like this sentence, because Joseph was an upright and law-abiding police officer. He never gave a ticket to anyone who was caught speeding. <laughs> and, and we would hear that and we would go, well, that doesn't quite work together. Those two sentences are are not the same. So, mm-hmm. and, that, and even that metaphor falls apart eventually. But mm-hmm. I, I love what you're saying, that, that, that it's, just, it's, it's Joseph's pushing into contr- controversial space, isn't he? He's, mm-hmm. he's doing... He's doing exactly what we don't expect. And I think it makes it a brilliant sentence where Matthew's like, oh, Joseph was righteous. <laughs> but wait till you hear what he did. <laughs> and and, and, you're, and so you're reading this, again, this kind of almost this tabloid feel. You're reading mm. this going, well, that doesn't quite figure. And almost as if Matthew's saying to you, oh, and if you're struggling with that, <laughs> wait till you meet Jesus. <laughs> Indeed. And, and and doesn't Jesus say himself later on, when he opens up probably in the Matthew account, his manifesto of the kingdom, this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like, he, he preempts some of his most wonderful and controversial teaching by saying, oh, and by the way, unless your righteousness mm-hmm. exceeds that of the Pharisees, you, you, won't, you won't see the kingdom. This kingdom that I'm describing, you, you'll miss. Now, now, what on earth does he mean by that? So he's speaking about a group of people who would strain the gnat out of their wine glass, that would tithe on their herbs in their garden. So these are serious law-abiding people, and yet Jesus is saying they're keeping the law, but maybe they're missing the point of righteousness. Yeah. That's going on here. And I think when you see how Jesus engages, and we've touched on this before in various things, when you see how he engages with the Pharisees, I think that's the pull and push of their conversation. You've dotted the I's, you've crossed the T's, to use an English analogy, but but actually you're missing the point here. So, So the point here is that, yeah, Mary's in trouble but Joseph does the right thing. And that is that kicks off the story. We're, I mean, we're already in slightly choppy water with the genealogy. <laughs> the headline doesn't help us. And now we're into to serious controversy where Joseph, yeah. this, this paragon of virtue, seems to be, as far as the law is concerned, prepared to act subversively mm-hmm. in order to save Mary. Yeah. And it's interesting, David, that that's when the angel responds. So, mm. so we sometimes think, okay, so here's that's that's we might as well be hung for a sheep as for a lamb here. So let's go for it. <laughs> so, so we think that the angel is responding to the fact, oh, Joseph's about to divorce her. Mm. But could the angel also be responding to the fact that Joseph is not prepared to expose her? 
Mm. That actually, just as the Lord responds to something in the heart of Mary and says to Mary, you're, you're favoured, could it be that actually what the Lord sees here is a man that is prepared to swallow the shame on himself in order to spare this woman from mm. disaster and misery? Mm. And maybe, maybe that there's part of the response is 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 not just to stop Joseph divorcing her, but actually responding to Joseph's righteousness in this moment. Mm. I, I don't know. I, I could be pushing it a bit a bit far, but I I like I, I do like the idea of that, that the Lord is seeing the heart of this man. This man is prepared to be righteous mm. by not keeping the law. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you've got verse 20, after he had considered this. Yes. Uh, he, he's pondering this. So he's he's not acting rashly. That's definitely no. the... And, and I love what you're doing there, John, because there is a, a level where Joseph kind of is the bumbling fool of the nativity story often. But but here you've got, he's he is righteous, so that's a pretty high praise. He he doesn't want to expose her to public disgrace, so we've talked about that. But he has in mind. He, he he's he's wondering. He's 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 wishing. Maybe I should divorce her quietly. But after he's pondered this, but he's not yet acted on it. After he's pondered it, the angel says, "Don't be afraid to take her home." I mean, it's 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 a great point that you make there. This isn't as cut and dry as we often. Like we almost have it. If you go to a lot of Christmas nativity plays, <laughs> that it's almost a repentance moment when the angel meets yeah. Joseph and yeah. he's turfing Mary out onto the street, and the angel's saying, "No, no, back you go inside." But that's not what Matthew gives us here, is it? Actually, it's no. a it's a pondering, thoughtful Joseph who's trying to figure. Who's actually trying to figure the so I'm, this is turning into a sermon here, but no, no, <laughs> Joseph's right. trying to figure the righteous way out, Absolutely. and actually the angel gives him this new way of righteousness, which is actually take Mary home and That's raise right. this son as your own. And and if Joseph's going to divorce her quietly, that has implications on Joseph. How do you divorce oh, yeah. someone quietly? Yes. They live in a village in, in a village of two hundred people. Uh, exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, they're less than a, so. So the implication, David, would be, and again, we don't want to read too much into the silence. So hope, hopefully, our our listeners will forgive us, forgive me, for what I'm about to say. But but Joseph can't just abandon her by divorcing her quietly. He's going to have to invest something in setting her up somewhere else. He can't just take her home. Mm-hmm. He, he couldn't leave a pregnant girl divorced in the midst of betrothal to the mercy of that context, he would have to find a way to help her start a new life. And so so again, I think even in I, I think that's why you get this pondering. He's trying to work out what am I gonna do here? How am I gonna mm. get this girl out of this without without going down this incredible mm. route? And of course he has the first of these four dream moments in the Matthew account. I mean, it's quite incredible mm. that Joseph never speaks, but he has four dreams in the space <laughs> of the few, a few verses of, of the story. This is the first one, verse 20, his first angelic dream. Then in, in chapter 2, verse 13, he has the angelic dream about going to Egypt. Mm-hmm. 2.19, the angelic dream about coming back home. And then the fourth dream, 2.22, now, it doesn't say an angel appeared to him, but he was warned in a dream. And because of that, he withdrew to Nazareth. So, mm. 
Again, if I can draw the parallel to Mary's song, I think here's a man that's had more angelic visitations <laughs> in the space of a few comparative moments and I've had my whole life. He's a spiritual man. He's a sensitive mm-hmm. man. He is, in each of the four dreams he has, he immediately, immediately responds. Yeah. He doesn't get up and go, oh, what happened there? Can someone explain? Immediately in each of the four occasions, Joseph does something. He acts mm. in obedience. So here's a man that's not only having four dreams, but he's understanding those dreams immediately. He's able to appropriate those dreams, obey those dreams. And that all plays to this sense of spirituality, this sense of integrity, righteousness that's within this man. I mean, Joseph's a serious person and he clearly, in one form or another, he knows the Lord and he's able to respond to these very, very controversial and extreme moments with massive maturity. So one final thing then I want to make sure that we don't uh, end this episode without is verse 22 and 23. And I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. The All this took place to what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. (laughs) Yes. I actually preached on this yesterday, Emmanuel, from the Matthew account, and I cried most of the way through the sermon, to be quite honest with you. I was just alluding (laughs) to the fact that it's, it's a magnificent passage, and it's one of the greatest names we have describing the Lord in general and Jesus in particular. In this, the God who came to us, the God who became like us, the God who came for us. I mean, it's just incredible, incredible stuff. It it draws back to Isaiah. You've got this original context in Isaiah, which is nothing like what we are facing here in, in, in the strictest sense of the word. Ahaz the king is under pressure an alliance of two kings from the north of, well, Israel and Aram are coming to destroy Jerusalem. Isaiah says to Ahaz, ask for a sign. God will give you any sign you want. And Ahaz sort of in a moment of, is it humility or false humility or pretentiousness? He goes, I'm not asking God for a sign. And Isaiah says, well, God will give you one anyway. A virgin will conceive. And in that context, we we believe that that conception was in the, the most ordinary sense that a young girl had a had a child and the child was the symbol that God was with them in that mm. moment. And here we have now this incredible prophetic moment hundreds of years later being fulfilled. And it does show us again that in some of these great prophetic statements that is it Isaiah speaking forward? Is it Matthew reading backwards? Or is it a bit of both? Is it is it both going on here that Isaiah maybe didn't fully understand the prophetic implications of his prophecy to the life of the Messiah? But Matthew is the one who, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is charged with connecting the dots and showing us that there is a connection. And in fact, if you look at if you look at the first couple of chapters of Matthew, I mean, he's got Old Testament prophets all over it. We've got Isaiah yes, in 123, you've got Micah in 26 of Matthew, you've got Hosea in 215 of Matthew, and then you've got a you've got Jeremiah in 218 of Matthew. I mean, he is pulling out the heavy hitters here. These are serious, <laughs> serious, heavy prophetic 
references. And then even the sort of he will be called the Nazarene has a sort of a general prophetic mm-hmm. reference. There's no specific prophet he's referring to there, but a general nuance. So so Matthew isn't isn't just doing this here on Emmanuel. He is he's pulling together the great threads of prophetic ministry, which when they happened originally don't seem to have any messianic connection, but it is the writers of the gospels who mm-hmm. connect the dots for us. And and I do think it is one of those examples that the writers of the gospels help us read backwards mm-hmm. into the text. Reading Isaiah 7, 14 doesn't seem to refer to Jesus at all, but reading through the lens of Matthew's interpretation, suddenly we see it come together. I just recently read Brian Zahn's latest book, and he talks about the kind of way that our reading of Scripture develops across our life, or perhaps should develop across our lives. And he says, what you find, he says, there's a very childish reading of Scripture, he said, which is some people would call it literal readings. And that, that term is very loaded in that sense, where, where people just read the story and go, okay, that's the story and move on, right? He said, and then there's a level of Scripture, he says, where you get older, you read some theology books, and you start reading about, and you read things like this, well, Isaiah didn't necessarily mean this about the Messiah, this was more to do with Hezekiah, and this was a... and and. And Zan then says, and that's a really important stage of our life to get to, where we actually do the critical analysis on a text, like what actually happened here? Why are there differences between Matthew and Luke? But Zan's analysis of kind of, actually of, of almost the modern evangelical church is that that's kind of where we've stopped. Right? Mm-hmm. And as I'm reading his book, I was reminded of Philip Yancey's, he's talking about grace, but I think the metaphor works elsewhere. And Yancey says, one of the best ways to analyze a frog, we are told, is to dissect it. (laughs) He said, and by the end of dissecting a frog, he said, you have learned a lot about the frog. The problem is the frog is dead. And 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 the problem is I think a lot of us we we stop at that and we go well Isaiah probably wasn't really referring to the Messiah in the same way that Matthew is. So mm, I'm not sure whether Matthew should have done this or not. And, and Zan says then there's another level of text which you see throughout Christian history which he calls and the title is just his way of describing it. But he calls it the mystical reading of the text, right? Mm. Where where actually you start to read the text. So you, you, you've you read it and just accepted it in faith. You've also read it and analyzed it and, and, and assessed it. But then on top of that, now you're willing to read it to say this text is deeper than just its words. Yeah. And mm. that this text actually echoes throughout all of history in different ways. And we can see places where its ripples have new impact. The, the the critical mind of me goes, that is definitely not what this text first was understood to be doing. But now, and I think Matthew models this beautifully for yeah. us, that you can come back to a text and go, wait a minute, if we can open our hearts to the Holy Spirit, this text is now, you know, got bigger implications. And at one level, John, as a Christian and a pastor who's trying my hardest to follow Jesus, Like, I jolly well hope that's the best way to read the text because I kind of do that every day, right? I open up my scriptures that are written thousands of years ago and I go, man, I hope this helps me today. (laughs) I I hope this gets me through. And I think on a pretty regular basis, I apply bits of text to my life that would be far removed 
from the original readers of these sure. of, and, and writers. And you will do ex- – in fact, every single person that's listened to this mm-hmm. podcast has probably done a similar thing. We, we find a verse for a moment that helps us, and we're so grateful to that. And I, I'm not saying don't go doing the critical analysis, but just remember there's more to a text. And I think Matthew models this beautifully for us here with, with this bit of Isaiah. And I, I, I love the idea that Matthew would have been in the room in that post-resurrection, pre-ascension download from Jesus when beginning with Moses and the prophets and and bringing in the writings, Jesus goes, okay, let me me just show you where I am. Let me just connect the Mm. dots for you. And there's no doubt in my mind that writers like Matthew, and Matthew does this probably more than most, really does work hard at directly connecting us back to the Tanakh. And he shows us like reference after reference after reference directly. I mean, the other gospel writers do it both directly and indirectly. But but Matthew, oh, th- this, th- this was to fulfill what was written in. This is to fulfill what was written in. This is to, and over and over again, he does that because he is now reading scriptures he was raised on through the Jesus. And I think Jesus then is helping him to read Isaiah differently, to read Hosea differently, to read Micah differently, to read Jeremiah differently, Mm -hmm. and to see that there were multiple layers within the words of these original prophets, whatever Mm -hmm. was going on in the mind of these original prophets at the time that they spoke. So I I do love that. I think we're helped by that. And I think the gospel writers model for us a great way to read the scriptures as well Mm -hmm. through that Jesus lens. And they will call him Emmanuel. Come on. <laughs> and which means God with us. I, I love what Matthew does here as well, that's so subtle, and that he assumes you're going to keep reading. Uh, so, what do we know about Jesus so far? He's conceived of the Holy Spirit. You're going to call him Jesus because he's going to save people from their sins. And this fulfills an old prophecy where there's a son coming that will be called God with us. And I love the fact, John, that you hang out in Matthew for another 28 chapters. And the very, very final thing that is not only does Jesus say in Matthew's gospel, but the final line of Matthew's gospel is Jesus saying to the disciples, and I am with you always. <laughs> it's Come on. just so good, isn't it? It's so good. And it's so good. Uh, We should finish the podcast on that note. That is just superb. (laughs) Superb. God with us. Merry Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that's it for this bonus episode. And we're going to be back with our final Christmas episode tomorrow, just to give you an extra day to listen to that before you get lost in the Christmas world of turkey presents and hopefully enjoyable times remembering Jesus. So we're back with you tomorrow. Until then, goodbye.